Our first guest on the program today is a clinical psychologist who has an interesting take on COVID-19 and the consequences we're all living with. Dr. David Dozois teaches clinical psychology at the University of Western Ontario in London. Dr. Dozois, David, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us because you've got an article up at theconversation.com, which is one of our favorite websites, and it's all about COVID-19 caution fatigue, why it happens, and three ways to prevent it. So let's start at square one, Dr. Dozois. What on earth is caution fatigue? Well, caution fatigue really is, um, you know, what we're all experiencing, I think, right now. After a while, what happens as time has passed with uh, COVID-19 continuing and the restrictions we've experienced is we we start to lose motivation. We start to be less inclined to follow expert advice. We, you know, we grow tired of physical distancing and maintaining good hand hygiene and following the arrows at stores and those kinds of things. Right. And I think it's just something that happens because... Uh, we're continuing to uh, face this pandemic. In the article, you talk about uh, experts warning of something called an echo pandemic. What is that? Mm -hmm. Well, the notion of an echo pandemic is really the idea that, uh, you know, we're experiencing the the onslaught of COVID-19 right now, but the echo pandemic really is an increase in mental health problems. And so, We've noticed, I've been uh, um, participating on a board of uh, Mental Health Research Canada. We conducted a, a series of polls. Um, the first poll found that the number of people who rated their anxiety as high to extremely high quadrupled from prior to COVID to uh, when COVID sort of first hit in April, okay. is when the first poll was done. And that anxiety and depression levels, um, depression doubled, and, and those uh, kind of levels have stayed the same. People are worried about this. The echo pandemic is really kind of this notion that there's going to be a massive increase in mental health problems um, as a result of what we're dealing with right now. Dr. Doswa, what, uh, what percentage of the population, it doesn't have to be deadly accurate, but I'm just curious, you talk about people whose anxiety levels already high or maybe even elevated slightly beyond that uh, actually increase increased uh, with the onslaught of the, of the pandemic. So what's put percentage of the population on any given day, David, walks around with this sort of elevated or high anxiety uh, mindset? Yeah, so according to our poll, which again, I, I should present a caveat that that was self-report data. So this is people's self-reported data that their anxiety is high to extremely high. Mm-hmm. That jumped from 5% pre-COVID to uh, 25%. Uh, or sorry, 20% post-COVID. So it was a four times increase. Uh, Depression more than doubled from about 4% to about 10%. Now, that's not necessarily diagnostic. There's a difference. And, and, you know, if you look at depression, for example, the the prevalence of, you know, a diagnosable kind of depressive disorder in Canada right now is about 4% in a given year. Right, but you're talking here, I think, as, as I interpret caution fatigue, which is your mm-hmm. phrase, uh, I think it, 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 to me, it sounds a whole lot like sort of wear and tear on our best intentions. Right, for sure. And I'll just uh, mention that the, the term caution fatigue wasn't developed by me. I think it was the university uh, professor in Oregon who kind of came up with that term originally, but... But yeah, that notion that it's just kind of wearing and tearing on us for sure. And it's, it's sort of dragging us down. I think there are different reasons why we experience caution fatigue. Um, 
happy to go through those if, if that would be of interest. I absolutely would be interested, Doc. This is what we're, so many of us are going through, and so which has so, not many of us, but which has some of us sort of scurrying off in, in odd directions as, as a consequence mm-hmm. of just trying to handle this. So, yeah, please, let's go through why it happens. Well, I think, you know, I think one of the um, aspects of COVID fatigue is the notion that um, facing our fears or doing what we, we, what we would call exposure is a double-edged sword. So when anxiety um, first kind of started to increase with the pandemic, I mean, I think the pandemic created anxiety in almost all of us. Sure. Um, and I think that was a normal response. Mm-hmm. But what happens when we, we experience anxiety is our bodies prepare us for this, uh, to deal with a threat. We're either prepared to fight it or to get out of there. And so our bodies kick in this whole really intricate um, physiological system where where our heart rate increases, the blood's going to our main muscle groups, and it's preparing us so that we can fight the threat or get out of there. Um, And that's really an adaptive thing. And so that's sort of what was happening, I think, at the beginning of the pandemic. We were all extremely concerned. We didn't know what COVID-19 was, sure. how bad it would get, and so on. And and so we very much were, many of us, most of us were paying attention. Um, as time passed, though, that feeling of COVID fatigue sort of kicked in. And part of the reason that occurred is because when we face our fears, our anxiety goes down. When I'm treating uh patients I work with using cognitive behavioral therapy, the treatment of choice really is exposure for anxiety. It's facing our fear, uh-huh. trying to get out and approach those things. So if I'm a, having a free, uh, fear of public speaking, the idea would be to do start small and work your way up to doing more uh, public speaking. If I have a fear of dogs, I might start out looking at images of dogs and then moving toward seeing a puppy from far away and then, you know, gradually getting exposure to it. It it works so well. It's a very powerful intervention. Mm -hmm. When we expose ourselves to our fears, our anxiety goes down. In the case of COVID-19, our anxiety is going down, even though the threat is still very real um, because we've habituated or we've gotten used to it. And of course, whenever we face our fears, our anxiety starts to go down. And timing has something to do with it, too, doesn't it, doctor? Because uh, we, the timing, we got locked down. The whole nation got locked down good and tight in March yeah. as we were coming right. out, of, out of winter into a, a messy spring. And then all of a sudden, we had summer. And we had patios, mm-hmm. and we had opportunities to socialize and, and get out from uh, out the igloo <laughs> and, re- and re- re- reintegrate with, with one another. Uh, and, of course, the, yeah. hu- the human tendency is to integrate, to socialize, to gather. It, it's, it's, a, it's a normal reaction. So when summer came along, we had entrepreneurial people in the hospitality business recognizing these things and doing their darndest to make a dollar in the process – actually creating circumstances where we could gather safely outside on a patio, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. So sure. that that loosening of our ability to interact with each other through the summer months, did that in some way contribute to caution fatigue? Well, it, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to talk about causal uh, models here and knowing what, what causes what, but I, I do think that that probably had an influence. I think at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, we were kind of all staying inside. It wasn't too difficult because the weather wasn't so great. Right. Um, and I think you're right. The summer months, interestingly enough, the, the anxiety didn't really change in the summer months when restriction was 
restrictions were lifted, which is I find interesting that even though the case counts were starting to starting to go down a bit in the summer yes. and the restrictions were lifted and we were getting outside, the, the anxiety itself didn't go down. But that that notion of we yeah, we were all going outside, we were able to enjoy going for socially distanced walks and um, and some restrictions were lifted such that they allowed people on patios at fifty percent capacity exactly. on the province and so on. And so and then, yeah, you're right. I think it, it sort of let us. I think it made COVID nineteen seem almost familiar. You well, know, it's it's almost like the devil, you know. Well, and, and um, I suppose with the patios, particularly again, it was all done with plexiglass and a great deal of thought and, and expense. Sure. But you know, that allowed us to socialize and perhaps, and as you say, become familiar enough with living within a pand or through a pandemic to the point where we kind of started to let our guards down, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. And I think you're right. You, you alluded to the, the notion of um, that, that drive in us to be connected. We are wired, you know, physiologically and, and psychologically to be, to be loved and to love and to connect with people. And, you know, we know there's, there's great data that shows that, um, you know, the lack of connection or social isolation is, is really related to uh, not only um, mortality, like it's a greater predictor of um, mortality than smoking, obesity, and diabetes, being alone or lonely or socially isolated. Mm-hmm. It's a huge health problem, but also it's a huge mental health problem. We need to, to connect with other people and to get together with other people and to feel loved and to be loved, right? We're social creatures. Absolutely. So, um, so that is part of what we're, we're on the risk-benefit ratio. We're kind of saying, well, it's worth the risk, even though it's it's still very dangerous. And as you're seeing, the, the numbers are going up. It's a pleasure to have Dr. David Dozwa with us from the University of Western Ontario, where he is a professor of clinical psychology. Dr. Dozwa has written a piece recently at theconversation.com entitled COVID-19 Caution Fatigue, Why It Happens and Three Ways to Prevent It. Dr. Dozwa, we've done a pretty good job of identifying first and foremost what caution fatigue is and why it happens. We, As you say, we've just sort of become pretty familiar, despite the fact that the pandemic continues, the statistics are, once again, this weekend, staggering, in particularly Ontario, Quebec, well, everywhere, Alberta, BC, Manitoba, for crying out loud, uh, the numbers continue to go up, and yet more and more of us across the country are reporting this caution fatigue. Could you could, could you just put it down to burnout? And it's not anything to do with healthcare providers burnout, the people on the front lines in the hospitals who are physically and mentally just worn down to almost nothing. What about the rest of us in terms of burnout? I think it isn't just, uh, I think you're right. I think people are exhausted. I think part of it as well is that um, we, as I mentioned earlier, once we start facing our fears, our anxiety goes down and we start to um, habituate or get used to whatever the threat is. Right. Now, in this case with COVID, it's a th- true threat, but nonetheless, we've gotten used to it. I think part of it is as well that we are exhausted and it's a bit of information overload. I think we're once we keep hearing the same kind of messages, no matter how um, difficult they are to hear, we start to become desensitized to it. I know when the cigarette packages years ago first came out with those images um, that were graphic about... Oh, the, with the, the lungs and all of that stuff, right? Yeah. 
Exactly, right? But smokers would, would be shocked by that. But then two weeks later, they're used to that. They're still smoking, right? right. So it's, I, think that, I think we just get used to and desensitized uh, to information when we get fed a lot of information again and again. And this is not going to stop. Uh, be, being at, on my side of the microphone at a news uh, organization, David, I can tell you 100% this supply, this gusher of information, of monitoring, of statistics, and the endless repetition of same is by no mm-hmm. means destined to stop anytime soon. So we're talking now about, you identified three ways that we can help prevent caution fatigue and, and I'm, sure. I'm looking at the at the list and, and one of them is not turn off the radio and the tvs tune out you can't afford to do that you can't afford to be in an information vacuum either can you no you can't although i would i would encourage uh viewers or listeners to um to really uh limit the amount of of media coverage they're they're paying attention to i think it can be dangerous to continue to to be checking and for some people i think it uh, unnecessarily increases their anxiety level. And for other people, I think it desensitizes them. So a nice balance. Um, you know, I think checking the news and being up to date, right. but not kind of obsessively going back to, to that either online or in news channels. Well, you know, and it's interesting because it's the same It's the same advice that uh, people give to people who own uh, stocks. Uh, you know, don't watch BNN. You, you'll go absolutely nuts because it'll be up one hour and down another hour and you'll be a wreck by supper time. You can't, you can't afford to. You just have to let it go. So in this case, exactly. too, there's also a, yes, monitor what's going on, for goodness sake, but don't get uh, too engaged in the, in the minutia. How's that? Well, and your your example of stocks is a great one, because I think with a lot of stocks, what happens is people um, emotional reason rather than reason with their, their brain, with rather than thinking rationally. And I think with COVID-19, we need to, it, in order to hit that sweet spot of not being too anxious, but also not being nonchalant about it, we need to be very careful about being evidence-based in our thinking. In other words, letting facts dictate what we uh, think and do versus emotions. Don't be emotional reasoners, but really look at the evidence and the probabilities. On one hand, you know, this is a true threat, but if I'm careful with hand washing and distancing and, and uh, doing the, the things that Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and, and your other local professional um, public health uh, people are saying to do and those guidelines, then you're going to be safer than you, you, you are not the normal statistics. You'll right. be lower than the normal statistics because you're being careful of that. On the other hand, don't let it just fly by you and not pay attention to it. It really is important that we do our part and, um, and that we're you know, evidence-based or fact-based in our thinking about both the, you know, the danger, but also um, you know, so that we hit that sort of sweet spot in terms of, of seeing it for what it really is. So using is ev- evidence-based thinking so to, to deal with the facts, uh, trying to keep things on an even keel emotionally. So that's trying to, mm-hmm. keep, your, trying to keep your anxiety level uh, somewhat in check. That's, that's suggestion number one of three for preventing yeah. caution fatigue. Keep those anxiety levels in check. What's number two? Well, the second thing I think we often don't do is is to really move and think beyond ourselves. Um, I think a lot of times we're we're very selfish, kind of self-absorbed people, and not everyone, but many of us kind of think about our own day-to-day and how this is affecting us rather than thinking of the greater good. And I really think we need to 
um, look at the elderly and the vulnerable and other people and, and recognize we need to do our part for society. And it's very interesting because there's a huge literature on the notion of sort of pro-social giving and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Where when we give to other people, we actually are happier people. Um, so, you know, this is shown in, in a study actually at the University of British Columbia where they gave out, um, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn had a study where she and her colleagues gave out 10 $1 coins um, to uh, research participants, and they were allowed to give um, their uh, $1 coins to another research, research participant who would only get that amount of money. And the people who gave more to the other research participant were happier. Those who were um, sort of more stingy with the, with the giving mm. actually showed greater stress hormones and were not as happy as people. And we've even seen that in other studies where they've done that with toddlers giving out those little fish crackers. All right. Um, those toddlers who give tend to be happier as uh, shown by, you know, researchers coding facial expressions and so on. So giving and, and moving beyond ourselves is a way for our own happiness, but it's also going to pull us together as a community and allow us to focus on what, what we need to be doing uh, to reflatten the curve. Okay, so that's number two: thinking beyond ourselves, looking at the the, the bigger picture. And what's tr- uh, item uh, number three for helping us all to prevent caution fatigue? Well, I think the third one is about sort of managing our own stress. Um, with this information overload, what happens is we tend to get kind of exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a researcher way back in you know, the, the 60s who talked to Hans Selye, who talked about this notion of a general adaptation syndrome, where we, when a threat happens, we first get uh, this alarm system that kicks off. But if it continues too long, the, the body kicks in an exhaustion. We can't keep those levels up so high. Mm-hmm. And so for us to not feel sort of mentally overloaded, uh, it's important to keep our own stress in check by doing things that are going to kind of um, increase our own resilience, I guess, and uh, and strength during this time. So things like um, trying to pra- practice self-compassion. You're probably not going to get as much done at work, uh, whether you're working at home or or actually going in, as you you were before. Um, you you know we need to cut ourselves some slack. Right. It's important to be active, to get outside, to to be physically active. Um, it's important to put things in perspective. It's important that we try to connect socially, even though we're physically distancing. Uh, all of those things, our diet, our sleep hygiene, our you know, exercise and so on, are things that are really going to increase our, our resolve and our ability to kind of maintain um, you know, our, our, our uh, sense of balance and perspective throughout this uh, pandemic. A sense of balance. There it is right there. That that's just sort of boils it all down into in, uh, one nifty little phrase, actually, David, doesn't it? Because it really is about balance. How to how to, how, really to, how, to how to navigate this bizarre maze that we all find ourselves in, and we're all sort of equally bouncing off the walls in the darks in, in some ways <laughs> still, and, yeah. and, and yet at the same time recognizing that the greater social need is that we get through it all, and we get to the vaccine, and we get to some kind of normal somewhere down the road. Keeping anxiety levels in check 
Act beyond yourself, act beyond the individual, and manage stress levels better. Those are the three tips for preventing caution fatigue. If you'd like to read the entire article, we commend you to theconversation.com and a piece called COVID-19 Caution Fatigue, Why It Happens and Three Ways to Prevent It by Dr. David Dozois from the University of Western Ontario in London, where he is a professor of clinical psychology. Dr. Dozois, a real pleasure to have you on the program this morning, David. We must do this again. Uh, have a terrific Thank holiday, and, and uh, we'll, we'll convene, reconvene in, in the new year and have a look at uh, what 2021 presents for us. That sounds good. Nice chatting. Thanks so much. A pleasure. Dr. David Dozois in London, Ontario. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program this morning, although the content of our conversation is going to be a little on the sobering side. It's a very important conversation nonetheless to have. Isaiah Chan is Director of Counseling with the Credit Counseling Society here in Vancouver, and we're here to talk about their brand new, just published 2020 Consumer Debt Report. Isaiah Chan, good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the 2020 Mm -hmm. Consumer Debt Report. This, of course, uh, would be uh, as we had a reckoning from the government of sorts the other day in Ottawa with their financial update, uh, giving us Mm -hmm. some kind of vague roadmap about what they're up to. This is much more specific, much more indicative of the reality many Canadians are facing, Isaiah, and it's tough Yes. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, we, we alongside Angus rebuilt this consumer debt report so we could get a deeper understanding of, of how Canadians are doing when it comes to savings, debt and financial management. And um, there are some pretty big takeaways from it. Um, first off, it looks like Canadians have an inflated perception of their ability to manage their finances. So uh, our report indicated that while only 17% of Canadians believe they need help with their finances, um, we found that 27% stated their finances make them feel anxious. Uh, a third of us are actually having difficulty paying down our debts, mm-hmm. so not able to make more than those minimum payments. And almost half of us, or 44%, have one month for less of emergency savings. So what does that tell you, though? But And I suppose the first numbers you said, was it 25% of us think that we, uh, we've we got our, our finances under control, and yet uh, 17% of us um, don't understand what's going on? That I find it difficult to reconcile those two numbers, and yet I also believe you. Yeah, no, so it was that only 17 believe, 17% of Canadians believe they actually need help with their finances. Oh. However... Yeah, so it's the other way around. So, so 27% though feel that their finances are making them anxious. And, and actually, a third of us stated we're not um, making much headway with our debt. We're struggling with paying down our debt, um, not making more than those minimum payments, um, on, you know, on credit card debt. Sure. And then it's pretty astounding when we see that, um, you know, almost half of us have one month for less of emergency savings. So, there's this clear discrepancy between the number of people who think they need help and those who actually need help, um, you know, and, and so it just, it's just, it's pretty revelatory there with respect to how, you know, initially we think our initial perception. And then when you start digging a little bit more into the facts, you know, what our financial situation actually looks like right now as a whole. And uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the findings, because you really did dig uh, fairly deep. And this is all very fresh, too, friends, by the way. This report has been out for what, uh, Isaiah, about four days now? This is really fresh material. 
Yeah, it came on December 2nd. And, and so some other things we found is that, you know, due to COVID-19, people are certainly becoming more conscious of their spending habits than they were previously. Mm-hmm. But another thing that we, we really saw, and not un, it's not surprising, is that there's still some significant stigmas around talking about personal finances and asking for help, uh, which is something we really need to address together as a society to help normalize money talk and help people who are having these financial challenges realize that they're not alone and that it's okay to to talk about it and and ask for professionals such as from our team with nonprofit credit counselors. Sure. Now, the other thing, Isaiah, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to zoom in because we'll, we'll talk about a lot of the numbers that this particular mm-hmm. report reveals. But what I'm curious about uh, is the influence of the government programs on consumers. Because we know, for example, some sectors of the economy have been just absolutely creamed by the COVID uh, lockdowns and restrictions. And other sectors of the economy are just Hope just pounding right ahead, not not so much as missing a beat for many many months. So, uh, how about uh, those people who have been uh, who have through no fault of their own lost their yeah. jobs and are relying now on government programs to get through all of this? What are they telling you in this survey? There's a lot of anxiety around that, um, and uh, you know, it, there's there's certainly. Uh, concern with respect to just just from the clients that we speak with every day, in fact, who are who are struggling, um, a lot of anxiety about what's going to come next, a lot of uncertainty, and it's hard for any of us to to sit here and um, you know predict um, you know what to do. People are battening down the hatches mm-hmm. as best as they can. So we saw, interestingly enough, some trends in in the household debts uh, for the first part of COVID here, where they were. Uh, it, they were going down. They went down significantly from about, I think, 170% uh, percent to about 153%. And then interestingly enough, as you've alluded to, some parts of, of the economy just seem to be doing fine. And so the latest um, uh, reports are showing that those debt levels are starting to go up. So those who are re- have been relying on uh, credit deferrals and, and government subsidies are, um, uh, are, are stressed. Uh, right now. And um, there are, however, there are others who have kind of taken advantage of this opportunity potentially of lower interest rates um, to um, drive uh, consumer borrowing back up to, uh, to towards levels that are nearing uh, norms or pre- uh, previous norms established prior to COVID. Right. And, and it's interesting that one of the other uh, stats, and, and I'm not looking at it in particularly in this report, but just uh, yeah. sort of uh, uh, just something else that's come up in the past few days. And I'm sure you've seen it as well, Isaiah, because it's what you do. Canadian mm-hmm. savings rates are way up because of some of these support programs that have come out went to people who didn't need the money. And uh, so their savings accounts have increased and, and bank deposits are up because of this. I'm sure you're noting these these uh, sort of ancillary uh, uh, situations that are coming up uh, alongside of all of this. And, and it must be even more perplexing when you're seeing that uh, people, some people are actually able to save money while others are frantically uh, trying to, to scrounge anything they can get. Well, it can be perplexing. And, and you know, I, I don't want to necessarily speculate on, you know, whether money went to individuals that shouldn't have and so forth. And, in a significant enough um, amount where it could have driven up savings. But mm-hmm. one thing our report certainly did um, 
emphasize and, and what we saw was that people are more aware. So, for example, in, in British Columbia, um, one of the things that we were more likely uh, to state was that COVID-19 has made cutting back on non-essential spending more important for us than before the pandemic. So mm-hmm. uh, I think those higher saving lo- savings levels have also been, been driven by fear, by um, a recognition that um, our financial situations, a lot of people have realized it's more precarious than, than they thought. Um, and what's really interesting about COVID-19 is that it's provided us all with a real life financial stress test. Sure. And some of us have done better than others for various reasons, of course. And uh, as you pointed out, there's there some things that have just been beyond the control of anyone. It would, would have been hard to plan for ahead for this anyways, right? Um, but it, it has been really interesting. And, and we've seen uh, for a lot of people, again, the realization that I need to save right now. This is not the time to go out there and start mm-hmm. spending more money. Who knows what's going to happen next? Isaiah Chan is on the line. Mr. Chan is the uh, Director of Consumer Counseling for the Credit Counseling Society. They've just issued their 2020 Consumer Debt Report. And Isaiah, I I said uh, before the break, I wanted to talk about non-mortgage debt because according to this Mm -hmm. study, uh, two of every three of us, 64% of Canadians, all of us, are carrying non-mortgage debt, which I assume is everything but being responsible for mortgage payments, right? That's correct, and, and that doesn't mean that uh, the those the two out of three of us that are carrying on mortgage debt do not also have a mortgage to pay for in addition to that. So, uh, yeah, and you also talk about you break it down a little bit more. Uh, some some mm-hmm. you have some provincial numbers, some yes. gender numbers. Tell us a little bit more about this uh, this non mortgage debt. I'm assuming most of it is uh, either credit cards or car loans, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And so. Um, it's it's interesting, as you mentioned, just it's from a geographical perspective uh, in, in BC, um, we do have the lowest non-mortgage debt, so sitting at about 57%. And on the high range, you've got you know, um, the prairies, Manitoba, Saskatchewan at over 70%, and Atlantic Canada as well at, at over 70%, um, and uh, 68% of males uh, are, are uh, carrying um, non-mortgage debt, so there's um, there are some differences there certainly. And demographically, uh, younger mm-hmm. people are more prone yeah. to carrying non-mortgage debt, and that I, I think some of that probably is just the fact that well, you know, I'm I'm 32. I got lots mm-hmm. of time to pay this stuff off. No biggie. That's part of it, isn't it? That's exactly it. So it's it's unsurprising, and um, you know it's 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 almost expected. Um, and and at the same time, I think what we want to look at there is not that that demographic that that range uh, or demographic range is um, carrying more non mortgage debt or more likely carrying non mortgage debt than um, you know different uh, demographic um, ranges like in terms of age. But just the percentage, the share percentage is sitting at 73% of those age 35 to 54 are carrying non-mortgage debt. Right. I wonder what, you, what your thoughts are as, as we're looking mm-hmm. at the, the rollout, for example, on TV these days. All the new car ads are on TV, <laughs> Isaiah. They're all the 2021s. They're looking pretty spiff. And they all yep. can be financed over 84 months. <laughs> that's, yes. that's, that's a lot of years. Remember, that used to be you had to get your car done in three years, two, if you could pull it off. And now it's up yep. to what, seven or eight 
Yeah. Well, it used to be just if you don't have the money, you can't buy it, right? Well, so you either can pay cash or you can't, right? And it's certainly evolved. And so the cause of it is, I think it's multifaceted. There's certainly you're speaking to the ease of accessibility. Sure. Uh, and and that is huge. I think that is is probably one of the, the number one reasons. Um, and then coupled with uh, societal pressures. So we've never been bombarded as much as a society as, as we are now with just, you know, keeping up with everyone else, the, the ads, the um, it, it's, it's right there front and center. So we're looking at everyone else who's got that nice new car and, and so forth. There's certainly, um, you know, from our perspective, often a, a lack of, of budgeting is involved. So mm-hmm. Hey, you know, it's just, you know, easy payments of X number of dollars over, you know, once a week, every two weeks. And then the other thing, too, is just because you've been approved for a certain amount of debt doesn't mean that you should you should borrow that much. Right. Um, so that ease of accessibility though really stands out. Indeed. So let's uh, let's cut to the chase here, Isaiah, mm-hmm. because we've only got a couple of minutes left and, it, and it's it's time to start talking about what to do. Because yes. as you've, you've talked in your survey, and, you, and we, we all know that there are people who are really having a tough time. They've lost their jobs, again, through no fault of their own. They've been dealt a crappy hand by COVID, and yep. they're, just, they're just struggling. And so now they're just starting to sort of feel the walls starting to close in around them, and it's becoming impossible to service the debt the way they honorably want to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. So they got to sit down and sort something out. Where do you start, Isaiah? So it's, it's a good time of the year because we're, we're near the end of 2020 to take a look at how the year has gone for you. As I mentioned earlier, it's provided us all with this real-life financial stress test. And look at how you've done. If you've been doing well, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But if you're struggling, take a moment to review where your pain points are and begin to make some plans to address them. Um, and the reality is you may have to make some tough decisions. There's, you know, we always hear it, but it's, it's there are no easy ways out. Mm-hmm. So the more proactive you can be, the sooner you can begin to, begin to turn that ship around. Getting into more specifics, I'd recommend that people start by making a plan to tackle their debt and try to establish some savings now. Keep it simple, set some realistic goals, create a budget, and track your expenses. Uh, I know it sounds so straightforward, but it's astounding on a daily basis with the clients we work with how impactful and revealing it can be when someone writes down what they think they're spending and then actually takes the time to look at what they're actually spending. And it, it lets us process our emotions around our money situation and then be more objective. And if you're not sure what to do, again, ask for help got a great team of nonprofit credit counselors here at CCS who can provide that free and objective advice. All right. So what happens? So if the wolf is at the door, you're getting nasty letters and mm-hmm. phone calls from collection people and life is really ugly. Then what? Again, ask for help. Talk to people like us. We can walk you through what your, what your specific situation looks like. Talk to you about what your rights are, how to handle uh, you know, those collection calls, those collection letters, and talk to you about the various options you have available. It's not a one size fits all. So if that is what's happening and you're that, you know, far down along the path with respect to collections, get help. All right. So where do we go? Where do we find the Credit Counseling Society here in Vancouver, Isaiah? Uh, Yeah, you can find us online. So for more information on this report and to get that help, go visit our website at www.nomoredebtswithaness.org. No more debts. Plural, no more debts.org. Isaiah Chen, Director of Counseling with the Credit Counseling Society here in Vancouver. Some solid advice on a Sunday morning. Thank you for getting up early and sharing it with us. Good to have you with us. My pleasure. 
Our guest is John Duda. Mr. Duda is president of the Real Estate Management Service Division of Colliers Canada. Colliers, of course, the commercial real estate company. They've just uh, issued a couple of new surveys about the future of the workplace. And as we've gone through this COVID-19 experience, right since uh, March, when we all got locked down and nobody went to work pretty much anywhere, to uh, the point where now we're looking at vaccines and the possibility of returning to the workplace. Will it be the same size as the one we left or in the uh, interim will our company have downsized a lot of plans are on hold and it all has to do with productivity john duda in toronto good morning welcome to the show sir Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thank you, John. It's good to have you with us today. A lot of plans, and we've been following this very carefully through the summer, and a lot of companies, my own included, we're in an office tower in downtown Vancouver at, at, at our equivalent, Bloor & Young. We're at Georgia and Granville, and uh, we, we used to have two floors. Now we have one, and uh, we are, uh, uh, like a lot of other companies, uh, down to a skeleton crew in the building, and most of our team works from home. So logically... Why wouldn't the executives at this company and many others, John, go, well, you know, uh, this working from home thing seems to be okay. So maybe we can, maybe we don't need this high overhead office space or at least as much of it going forward. That was a conversation, especially through the summer, John. Now it's changing again. Tell us why. Well, what's, what's, people are finding out rather quickly is that productivity has been down significantly. I think people have tried to deal with it, but have not succeeded. And this is not a new phenomenon through COVID. There were many companies uh, across the globe pre-COVID, uh, the likes of IBM, Yahoo Finance, uh, many others, that they banned permanent work from home for the re- two reasons. One was productivity decline rapidly hmm. and culture. They could not instill a culture. Um, these things hold true now. And the businesses are feeling it across the board. Um, there was a bit of a euphoria, I think, at the beginning and, uh, and a rally cry for people to deal with this and, and find a way through it, and they did. But um, at the end of the day, what we're seeing is a fatigue set in, and it's not uh, a normal fatigue like you've, you've gone and run and worked really hard and, and you're simply tired. It's that lack of connectivity. It's the lack of social interactions, the things we normally do. And without that, you start to feel like something's wrong and it's, and it's wearing. And this is what's showing on people now is this sense of weariness. And um, we think these attitudes are going to shift around uh, working remotely yet again. We've seen them in our survey and the office is most certainly not dead. Their people will be coming back. It's interesting. We had a professor, a clinical psychologist from University of Western Ontario on with us an hour or so ago, John, and he was talking about caution fatigue. Uh, basically, the notion that we, we become so we become almost immune to the information overload that we all deal with in terms of uh, COVID uh, updates and that sort of thing. Uh, and and we, we, we tend to let our guard down even when we know we shouldn't because we're just we're overloaded. So now you're talking about something you call call it zoom fatigue in an article that i read recently in the calgary sun about this and it's 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 simply uh, it's a different kind of strange a kind of burnout isn't it it really is it really is because you you think about it you people are a lot of people saying well hey it's great working from home mm-hmm. i can do more i don't travel as much 
But at the end of the day, there's no separation of, of work and home. So you're on longer, you're distracted more. Uh, if you live in a small place or a small condo, it's even worse. And that separation of space helps us to wind down, I think. So, John, now you're with the Colliers. You, you deal with the commercial real estate uh, end of, of uh, the business. And most of your clients, therefore, are companies and corporations who occupy commercial uh, space. So you're looking at this from the employer perspective. What about those employees on the other side of the coin? And I don't know how many of them there are. Perhaps your survey will, will help clarify it. But what about those employees who, who say, now, wait just a second here. I've never been more productive than since this whole thing came. My, I've changed my entire life and my approach to my profession or my craft completely. And now I, I'm probably the most effective performer at what I do that I've been in my entire working life. Now, I'm sure you hear that from some people who are working from home. What percentage of, would, of, of the home crowd would that represent, do you think, John? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but it is true. I think there are some people who, for various reasons, are simply functioning better at home. I I think part of it would have to do with the type of job you have. If you have a job where you need quiet time and and you need alone time to work, I could see that, you know, that working quite well. Um, But when you're in a job where you need a team, you need to interact with them, talk with them, see them as a group, it doesn't work well at all. So I don't know the percentage, Sterling, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm sure there is some portion of that of the workforce that that bill would fit. It's interesting that you talk about euphoria, John, because I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, as we went through the lockdown, through the very early days of this, and we had essential workers only, and the rest of us just had to stay at home, and finally we found ways to reconnect and get back at it. And and even the essential workers weren't allowed to, to uh, pursue normal activities. They all had to be done within the confines of COVID protocols. And so there was a fair bit of celebration going on. Hey, we can still get get this done despite the fact look how look how scattered we are and still we're getting things done we're moving the ball down the field and that was something to celebrate but as time goes by i'm starting to notice more and more not everyone certainly job but more and more people saying you know i kind of miss the old uh, well i miss the shop i miss the people and i miss the buzz yes and i think it comes down to again we're social beings we need to be around other people and sitting in your home 24 seven, it's not, it, it might seem good at first, but it's not, it's not something that can last. It sounds like you've been spending a fair bit of time working from home, John. And you that just sounds like first person singular emotion in some of these responses. <laughs> Absolutely. So now, I mean, but it is a, a fact that uh, companies have ca- had occasion, uh, I mean, necessity being the mother of invention, to even have those discussions at the board level, John. And I'm sure you've been uh, at least participating or see heard the outcome of many of those discussions. Do we really need this, all this space going forward? Uh, have you had a lot of conversations with current tenants who have been describing or discussing at length, reducing their, their, their spaces? Yes. And what's really interesting is that if what we got through our survey was that small business, the vast majority of small business are saying they're coming back 100% into the office. 
it's the large international businesses that are saying, well, maybe I can relinquish some space. Um, I, I'm curious to see how that pans out once, uh, once a vaccine's in place and people return. Um, I think from a large corporation perspective, you know, they're always looking at reducing their real estate costs. Sure. And this may seem like an ideal opportunity to do so. But I suspect that the extent to which they think they can do it is going to diminish as as people do return and they find that the productivity just isn't there. So what uh, is there any particular because your your survey and you did one in the summertime in June, John, and then you just did another one in November. And between June and November, as I understand it, there was a decrease in productivity levels Canada wide. Correct. And what, do, do, again, is this just an extension of the scattered nature of working from home? Uh, I, I assume that is it. I know to a, a few people that I have spoken with myself, um, you know, where they have to lead teams and they're trying to be creative and push whatever product or service they have forward and, and just being incredibly frustrated because they can't get a team mobilized. When you sit in a room and you're and you're there's body language, there's all kinds of different types of communication mm-hmm. that create creative juices flow. When you're sitting on a Zoom call, I don't know, I, I don't I don't think it's the same, and um, I, I think this is going to be driving the behavior to come back. It's we need to get together. We need to move things forward. Our guest joining us from Toronto is John Duda. Mr. Duda is the president of the real estate services division with Colliers, and they've just issued a new survey uh, taken in November talking about the the long-term future of the workplace, which since this has begun, a lot of us have been speculating, oh, the old workplace is uh, is gone. But of course, as this drags on and uh, reality sets in, uh, more and more of us, both sides of the coin, employers and employees, are thinking, maybe not. Maybe we should get back to the workplace. And it's all about culture, among other things. And we'll get John to talk to us about workplace culture in a second. But we did open the phone lines, John. And Dennis wants to jump in on the conversation with us as well. Dennis, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great topic. I'm a business owner, and I've done a hybrid of uh home office and as well as getting my staff to work at the office so subject to the orders we've kind of pivoted as we uh, as we could okay uh, in regards to uh, efficiency i'm working the risk benefits analysis here uh some individuals some of our staff are really uh, have a hard time working from home because of distraction right the pets and the door and the calls and the friends sure but some of the other staff are fully capable of working from home and they like it because it decreases the cost of travel Mm -hmm. it makes them they just get up they walk to their office and they're very efficient right from the beginning so we've had mixed results in regards to how it's been you know effective for us we've kept the same square footage at the office but meanwhile um you know it's being reassessed and so there is some benefits for some staff to work from home. I like working from home, a mixture of the two, but it's nice to have them in the office as well. So it's a conundrum of, you know, 
the, the risk-benefit analysis and if it's really effective. Right. And Dennis, uh, just before we let you go, and we appreciate the call. Uh, John mentioned this earlier when he was talking to because employers across the country are saying the same thing. When a vaccine becomes available to us in, in a large scale, would the plan at your shop, Dennis, be to cut the work from home completely and get back to what used to be normal? Or are you going to continue with the hybrid? I think I'll continue with the hybrid for a while and reassess it, you know, maybe for another couple of quarters. And then we'll determine if it's if it's working. And if not, we'll go back to the office setting. Interesting stuff. Thanks very much for the call, Dennis. John, what did you make of uh, Dennis's comments? A pretty interesting uh, 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 analysis of what we've been talking about for the, for the past 20 minutes or so. He really nailed it, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly the same thinking most every business is going through. They're going to experiment. Uh, that's quite clear, and they're going to see how it works over time. So most office uh, tenants are not making any uh, long-term decisions right now. They're right. trying to figure out what's going to work going forward. So now you're you're the real estate firm. You're the landlord in a lot of these cases, and you want to get these guys locked up for the longest-term lease you can possibly get done. So typically, what is what is a typical lease term? I'm assuming five or ten years. And what are people going for now in terms of short-term interim fixes? Uh, they may just do renewals for the short term for a year, for two years. Um, yes, five years to 10 years is, is uh, fairly common, um, but it is all over the map. But you're right. There are short term decisions being made uh, just to extend, stay where you are and see how this works in the, in the longer term. All right, now let's talk about workplace culture because a lot of your clients uh, create workplaces in which a culture develops, to say nothing of just the culture of going to work in the first place. Talk about that as a mindset, especially as it relates to productivity, John. Yes, and I mean, you think about it, culture can only develop between people when people are together. Uh, You you don't have a, a relationship with your computer. You have a relationship with the people around you. Um, you know, so I, I think developing that culture, and this is, again, studies from the past, you just can't do that remotely. You, you need to be in person. Um, but I think the nature of what that means could shift a little. Uh, what we're hearing from the states, the large tech companies, mm-hmm. is they're going to create more of a hub-and-spoke type environment where they may have many smaller offices where people can get together over a much wider geography as opposed to a very large campus and have everybody in that campus. Uh, So I think there will be experimentation coming up. Indeed. So now you've been talking to people all over Canada in terms of their long-term plans and are discovering that there aren't many. So we're just trying to, we're trying to figure this out and we'll take short steps uh, in the interim till things appear to settle down. But you also have discussed at some length, John, with your client base, what a vaccine or what difference a widely available vaccine will make to their plans. What are they telling you? Well, I think it's quite clear because it's 95% that they are going back to the office as soon as the vaccine is rolled out. Um, I, I, I was curious about that response because it was like saying, I just can't wait to get back. Um, but again, it's going to shift when they do. 
And again, of course, it's as we're learning, uh, it's, it's also not going to happen overnight. It's entirely possible that it could take us well into uh, third quarter of next year before a sufficient number of Canadians have been vaccinated to the point where we achieve that uh, threshold of herd mentality. So we're at least uh, three quarters of a year, possibly a full year away from, from uh, a, a solution that will matter coast to coast. That's what it sounds like. Um, and, and that is a bit of a, a worry because we see, see this f- fatigue setting in. And, um, you know, that, that isn't good for anybody. So it's something we're very conscious of. Uh, you know, we've rolled out a wellness program that's going to have additional things added on as we go through the next coming months. It's really to monitor people's um, mental health and physical health and make sure we're tuned into what's going on help them where we can, but we're having to do many extra steps now that we wouldn't have had to do before. Well, I'm noticing even the company I work for, a fairly large company, and, and they're also now, they're, you're, there's more all staff emails, basically, how you doing? And if you're not, yeah. you're not doing great, here's a website you can connect with, or here's a, here's a person you can talk to. Uh, there's, I think, a great deal of concern being demonstrated towards, uh, and I think the word burnout applies, even though you, I hate to use it because we sort of reserve that word respectfully, John, for the people like the doctors and the nurses who are on the front lines uh, dealing with all of this. But uh, the rest of us are, are dealing with a, a limitation, a, a a life of restrictions and limitations that uh, can be, for some, exasperating. Absolutely. That's exactly it, Sterling. So uh, we, as, as we go forward and get around the corner into 2021, John, uh, I'd l- like to make a date right here, right now, in front of plenty of witnesses to get you back on and, and have a look at how those plans are sort of falling into place. Once we get through the, the calendar year and once we have some kind of agenda defined for vaccinations, then we can talk again with a lot more concrete issues in front of us. Are you game? Absolutely. Happy to do so. Excellent. Between now and then, have a great holiday season, and thanks so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me, Sterling. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now. That's John Doda, who is the president of the Real Estate Management Services Division with Colliers Canada, joining us from Toronto. This headline in the Vancouver province caught my attention a couple of days ago. Is a Vancouver Canadian's Toronto Blue Jays reunion in the works? A column written by Steve Ewan for the Vancouver province. Steve joins us now with uh, the details and the backstory. Steve, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, how, are, how are things going for you? Well, not bad. You know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of odd that we're talking baseball, which we will in a second. I mean, typically here we are in the first weekend of December, Steve. You and I should be talking about that great Canucks game last night. And, and uh, the closest we can get to it this morning is how angry the owner is at the anthem singer. It's a really, really weird year. So I guess we're stuck talking baseball this morning. The Vancouver Canadians were supposed to have gone back to the Oakland A's, uh, a situation that local baseball fans we're pretty familiar with what was the backstory behind that i i think that the the uh baseball is trying to kind of rebuild its minor league system okay uh they want they they're trying to go from 160 uh, farm teams to 120 and giving each major league team only four farm teams they want to go regional to, to give them a chance to really focus on 
the players and and getting the players better. I think they that was the idea. Something happened. It sounded like the Oakland deal was done. Sounded like they had a manager named. Suddenly, Oakland is now going to go with Lansing, which was going to be a Toronto farm team, which leads to all the idea that Toronto and the Seas are back in back in play. Well, you left out the best part, Lansing, the Lansing Lugnuts. Come yes. on, Steve. You got a team name like that? You got to say it go. on the radio, Sorry, man. The Lansing Lugnuts. <laughs> what a great name for a team. Minor League Baseball is the best for names. No kidding. Huh? So they're in Michigan, much closer to Toronto. What would have made geographical sense. And yet for Toronto to maintain uh, a Canadian team and a presence on the West Coast to really backstop that Canada's team theme that the Blue Jays own, it really is quite a valuable little franchise for them to maintain, isn't it? I think it makes a ton of sense from marketing and, and sales and things like that. I don't know if it makes a lot of sense player-wise in terms of making sure you've got your people close so they can keep track of what's going on and make sure that there's uh, messaging all the way through. So it's, it's get, assuming that this goes through and, and the you know, word is it could happen Monday or Tuesday, we could hear uh, announcements. It's going to be interesting to see how they play it out and, and, and what their thinking is and what type of things they can do to kind of uh, complete their organization, the Blue Jays. Indeed. So now if the if this goes forward, as you wrote in the paper a couple of days ago, you expect it to. Um, so that would also see the Blue Jays, who are, uh, as I understand it, a, a short-season single-A team now, uh, they would have that status elevated and therefore play more games per season. How would that change and how many more games, Steve? The seas would the I, the plan or the rumored plan is that they would go from short season single A, which is being wiped out as part of the part of the the farm teams being cut. They're wiping out that entire level. Okay, they would jump up two levels to uh, advanced single A or high high A. So they could play between any uh, anywhere between 140 and 120 up from up from 76. So that's going to be a, a huge change. It's going to be. Interesting to see how they sell baseball at uh, baseball the Nat in April and May. Yeah, of course, that's the only problem. But, you know, uh, I can recall growing up in Toronto, Steve, I can recall going to Blue Jays games at the old Exhibition Stadium in April with snow on the seats. I think that's a, more of a, a risk in, in Toronto than it is yes. in Vancouver, don't you? Bobby Brett, who owns the Spokane franchise, one of the C's rivals, I talked to him about it, and he says, listen, they play baseball in Detroit in April. They play baseball in Chicago in April. They can play. They can play baseball on the West Coast. Indeed, they can. So, uh, would we be seeing uh, the same teams that we're accustomed to seeing in the loop that we've been playing in, or would this dramatically change the opposition as well? Right now, I, I believe the thinking is that it would be a six-team league with uh, six of the eight former Northwest League teams, the teams that we've seen seen here since uh, single A baseball came here in two thousand. Well, you know, and and I think the 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 most fun part about it for us, and I've had the good fortune. I have a couple of real baseball fans in my family, Steve. So they go to a lot of C's games, and I get uh, I get to go along with uh, with them on some of them. And I've I've seen current members of the Toronto Blue Jays playing in Vancouver Canadians uniforms for five bucks a seat, and it was pretty cool. I tell you, at the time, and that's going to continue, isn't it? That's good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great spot just to spend the night i think uh they do such a great job with food and beverage and and yeah all the 
all the extra things. I, they've done a great job of making every game, a, you know, its own little event. And I think this is a great uh, event town. So I think the people in charge of the seas really have that figured out. So last season, we just didn't play at all. The Vancouver Canadians did not play one game last season, did they? No, everybody was, uh, I think they were waiting and waiting and hoping. And I, I, I think middle of July, I think they canceled the entire minor league system. So I, it's, it's a brand new, I, I, and this is the chance for them to, for Major League Baseball to get the minors to rejig. And it, it, it's going to be fascinating to see where everybody kind of lands when the, when uh, everything settles. So the sport, the Major League Baseball is taking advantage, one could say, of the pause uh, to basically reorganize itself and in the process uh, set itself up for a more streamlined operation going forward. 100%. They are trying to cut costs. They're trying to focus in on, on you know, making making players better. I mean, if you think about it, if they're cutting, cutting 40 teams, that's somewhere in the somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 player jobs. So you would think that you'd get a better batch of players. And I, I, I think that just, it's sad for the French, for the cities that are losing franchises. I think you're seeing some cities that had, had my league baseball for years will now be pushed to independently or, you know, kind of summer, summer prospect leagues. I, I, but I get, I, you know, again, this pandemic and I think, uh, anything's possible right now. I think people are looking to cut costs and looking to kind of do what they can. Indeed. So, Steve, now uh, you're hoping that uh, the decision on the Vancouver Canadians and their future relationship ongoing with the Toronto Blue Jays or not will be uh, a matter of fact when? Sometime this coming week? I've heard anywhere between Monday, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I, I, I think that the hope is that they get it done early, early in the week. I think they're waiting for the entire all of Major League Baseball to have all their teams worked out, there's been a. Uh, I think the Yankees have named their farm teams, and the Mets have named their farm teams, but everybody else is basically kind of waiting to get everybody in line and do just a just a just a huge announcement. Interesting stuff. Well, we'll look forward to it in the papers, and I'll look forward to your column in the province uh, when it does come out. You can flesh it all out for us. And in the meantime, it's very exciting time for baseball fans here. And of course, we've got Nat Bailey Stadium. We're we're so lucky to begin with, and to have an it's ongoing relationship. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it sure is. Uh, be, be be more fun to see more Blue Jays prospects in in Vancouver uniforms going forward. Steve, thanks for this. Great to have you on the show this morning. We'll keep an eye on this story. Thanks so much. Vancouver Province sports writer Steve Ewan and the future of the Vancouver Canadians slash Toronto Blue Jays. Keep an eye for that story coming up in the days ahead. Our next guest did what a lot of Canadians did a few days ago. He sat down and watched the Minister of Finance deliver the fiscal update in the House of Commons. Then he sat down at his keyboard and wrote the following column for the Financial Post entitled, We'll Pay for All These Down Payments. Canadians Won't Like What Comes Next. The Higher Taxes That the Current Lack of Fiscal Discipline Makes inevitable. Uh, the column was written by Jack Mintz. Dr. Mintz is uh, joining us from Toronto this morning. He is with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, where he is the president's fellow, and he's always also a distinguished fellow with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Jack Mintz, good morning and welcome to the program. Uh, good morning. 
It's great to have you with us. We've never met before. It's a pleasure to finally have you on the show. I'm a big fan. I read your stuff a lot, and I tend to agree with some of the analysis that you uh, have made in the wake of the a fiscal update. No budget. We haven't had one of those for a long time. 237 pages of what you call repetitive, backslapping, and cliche-laden phrases that few will bother to read. So most of us won't bother to read it. You have. What do you make of it all? <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a good statement about uh, uh, what happens when a government, I think, is starting to feel some of the heat for what it did. And uh, my comment uh, in that the, uh, you know, spending has gone overboard over the past year. It's not that we, uh, you know, the, it was wrong for the government to try to keep households from going bankrupt and from businesses going bankrupt. Of course not. Giving, giving uh, support. But when you actually make people richer during the pandemic uh, with employment losses, that doesn't make sense. And and so uh, what happened, actually, the OECD even reported this, that uh, Canada actually had the biggest increase in household income in the second quarter during the pandemic, more so than any other country. Most countries, they gave support just enough to kind of keep households uh, even, even level. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, the transfers are about equal to their employment and investment losses. Right. Uh, but not Canada. We went up 11%. Uh, and uh, and uh, that's a large amount of money. Um, in fact, they estimated it's around $1,300 per person uh, for that quarter. So it's um, it's a very significant amount. Uh, and it means that, uh, you know, some point down the road, we're going to end up paying this back uh, in some way. Uh, but also the government is planning in its fiscal update to... Uh, even spend more money. Uh, in, in other words, uh, we do, you know, running a, a three, you know, three hundred and eighty-two billion dollars deficit wasn't enough this year. We're now going to have uh, projected deficits over the next five years. Uh, but also, these, these the numbers that were included in their projections didn't didn't um, add in the up to a hundred billion dollars of extra spending. And my bet it's going to be even more than that. Yeah, if they're going to if they're going to uh, deal with all the speech from the throne promises that they made, like for child care, long-term pharma care, care and all those care, other promises. Yeah. Jack, can you take a second, please, as an economist and just explain to our listeners, uh, and I know I'm asking you to retrace your steps here, but how on earth during uh, a lockdown, uh, and this is monitored by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. This is an international agency. This is not some kind of biased partisan local stuff. How did Canadians savings accounts go up? Well, what happened is during the pandemic, you you had two things uh, going. Savings are equal to your income minus your consumption. And uh, and Canadians actually ended up cutting their consumption during the second quarter. They didn't, you know, they couldn't spend money on travel. True, yeah. And probably they were also being a little cautious, uh, you know, worrying about the future. So they, um, you know, increased their savings for that reason as well. Um, but uh, also their their incomes went up, not down. Uh, even though employment and uh, employment income declined, investment income uh, declined to some degree, but not because of lower interest rates, but not not a huge amount. Uh, even even though those declined, uh, uh, they got so much money in transfers from the government that actually their total per household income went up. So if income goes up and your consumption goes up, then uh, it goes down. And, and savings is the difference between your income and your consumption, uh, then what happens is your uh, savings will go up quite a bit 
not only because their income went up, but also because their consumption went down. That's right. And that actually and that actually happened. Savings went up to 24% of what's called disposable income, that's your income net of taxes that you pay to governments. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's, um, and, and that's a huge increase. In fact, Canada had the highest increase in its savings rate than any other country in the OECD. And you pointed well. out in your column in the Financial Post that this, to you at least, was an embarrassing fact that the government had to sort of try to spin away. Yes, and they try to spin it away by saying, oh, well, we've given all these Canadians firepower now to spend money in the future, and we'll see whether that happens. In fact, there's a lot of deferrals coming up, uh, mortgage deferrals, which is already uh, in place. Uh, you know, people have to start paying their mortgages. That's right. There's utility deferrals, there's tax deferrals, um, and so they're going to need uh, their savings to pay back all these uh uh, amounts of income that uh, have been deferred, plus they're going to have to pay income taxes on some of the benefits that were received uh, or paid out, or most of the benefits that were received, received by the private sector is paid out by the government. And right. so there's going to be another tax bill going there. So by the time we finish with that, and also probably with some caution, uh, I suspect that consumer, you know, people are not going to go out and spend piles of money uh, when the COVID's over. I think they're going to be busy paying some of the bills that were due. Yes. And then, of course, if the government starts uh, raising taxes because they want to pay for all these new social programs, that will happen too. Well, the, it's interesting, the the uh, choice of words, and you in the, the title of the column was, you'll pay for, we will pay for all of these down payments. And that's the language chosen by the government, and it's certainly not new. Uh, governments uh, who uh, attempt to stimulate the economy, and it's been, <laughs> there have been dozens of attempts over the years, they always talk about investing in our future and creating jobs. And so this down payment language is very consistent with government intervention in the economy. Well, that's what it is. I mean, we have, uh, in fact, it's kind of remarkable that pre-COVID days, um, you know, we didn't find everything uh, affordable, things like, you know, having a Quebec-style child care program across mm-hmm. the whole country for universal child care. We didn't, and we didn't put in pharmacare, and we didn't do this and that. These are all expensive programs. Uh and uh, and uh, now after COVID, where you know now GDP is less uh, than what it would have been, uh, and uh, and in fact, uh, you know we're you know we've had some destruction to our uh, potential capacity to produce goods and services. So things are less affordable now, but somehow we can now afford all these things that the government wants to do, uh, including, by the way, I forgot to mention the green agenda, which is another uh, very expensive agenda. That's mm-hmm. coming down the road. And which includes the death of the energy sector as part of the package. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, how, uh, how will this affect the Canadian dollar ultimately, Jack? Because as and I'm, I'm oversimplifying things because I tend to do that to just try wrap my head around some of these concepts. But what we have right Right now is the Bank of Canada essentially backstopping the Canadian government by, I, I want to say, printing money in the basement, but they're not. But essentially, they are. Uh, how long can this go on before the international community recognizes this basement money printing thing and it begins to affect seriously the value of the Canadian dollar internationally? Well, I think, uh, you know, the dollar probably initially is, has risen. Uh, it's now up to 78 cents. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and part of that, I think, is because the U.S. dollar has been declining. Uh, and that's because people are, uh, are feeling now more confident because of the vaccines coming on. Right. And 
there was a lot of money that went into U.S. dollars uh, and Japanese yen when, when markets get very nervous. And so the Canadian dollar has, has risen. But there is a point where if um, it's uh, if the U.S., or sorry, if uh, Canada starts, um, you know, running, uh, you know, has has high debt and is going to the international market. And by the way, Canada's government debt is actually one of the shortest term structures in the IMF. And 22% of our, uh, right now, 22% of our, of our debt uh, every year rolls over uh, as a share of our GDP. So that's a very big number. Mm-hmm. And so uh, every time we go out to the international market, we got to hope that the international market has confidence in the plan that the um, that the Canadian government has for fiscal sustainability. And if they lose that confidence, then all of a sudden interest rates start turning uh, pretty heavily against you. In fact, we saw that during the pandemic. Weak countries like Italy and Argentina and a number of others, um, you know, had uh, shooting, uh, their interest rates shot up uh, from February to, to uh, May um, because they were viewed as highly risky countries. In fact, Argentina's interest rates went up by 17 points, yeah. 17 percentage points. And as we know, by August, Argent- Argentina reneged on its uh, public debt um, once again. So it's a... Um, it does. It does show you we're not Argentina right now. But the main point is that uh, there's a point where the markets start turning against you, and that can cause interest rates to go up. And not only that, we now have much uh, bigger amount of debt. So the total uh, carrying charges on our debt is going up because uh, we now have more debt. It's uh, you know it's uh, getting close to 1.2 trillion dollars. Uh, it's expected to be 1.6 trillion in uh, in five years' time. That's just the federal level. Yeah. Uh, governments and households and corporations where uh, that are also boring internationally. And so if the market ever turns against Canada, that will be a severe problem. And then, of course, you could end up getting the valuation of the dollar as people get nervous about, about Canada no longer want to hold Canadian dollars. Jack Mintz joining us from Toronto. Dr. Mintz is a distinguished fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's also national policy advisor with Ernst & Young and a regular contributor to the Financial Post. And his most recent column uh, dealt with the a reaction to the government's economic update a few days ago. Uh, Jack, it's all about, and you, you the uh, sub-headline to your, your column talks about, uh, the taxes that are going to be inevitable in order to pay for all of this, the the strategy that is most commonly offered is, well, we, we're just going to raise the taxes on the rich. Well, it's Canada. We just don't have that many rich people to begin with. So even if we went and chased them all down before they leave the country, how much money would that net at the end of a tax-chasing year? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, we have to recognize that the top 10% of individual taxpayers in Canada uh, already pay 60% of income taxes uh, in Canada. Of all so, income taxes. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, of, of, of uh, federal and provincial yeah. taxes. So, um, you know, we have to ask the question, like, how much more progressive do we really want the system, where right now we have one of the highest top rates at um, in the OECD, plus we uh, have a top rate that applies at a relatively low threshold compared to many other countries like the United States. So we recollect actually a lot of income taxes relative to um, as a share of GDP compared to uh, the OECD. In fact, uh, we're well above the OECD average. So uh, we don't have a lot of money there to keep uh, you know hammering the rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, some people think that we can just bring in a wealth tax on the very rich or uh, estate duties. Um, 
And, you know, there may be some arguments. Uh, I think there's very little argument for a wealth tax because we already have a wealth tax and foreign capital gains taxes and, and taxes on investment income like interest and, and dividends and things like that. So it's not clear you want another tax on what people hold in assets. Right. But um, uh, there is sometimes an argument for, um, you know, state taxes. Some countries have it. Um, actually, there's only four countries with wealth taxes, wealth taxes, but there are a number of countries that have estate taxes. But what you find in those countries is that they don't typically don't have deemed realization of capital gains of death like we do in Canada. And in fact, in 1972, when we brought in capital gains taxes in Canada, we got rid of estate taxes, but we brought in deemed realization of capital gains of death. So I would presume if we brought in the estate tax, we would probably get rid of um, um you know, deemed realization. So that is that then, a likely route for them to pursue from where you're sitting, Jack, to an estate tax? Well, no, I don't think so because uh, because we already taxed uh, deemed realizations of death. I'm not, I'm not sure the extra revenue we gained yeah. is going to be very small, less than a percent of of uh, GDP. And especially, uh, many countries end up giving exemptions, not just for a spouse, but also for you know. You know, uh, small business uh, heirs, you know, heirs of parents uh, that own small businesses and farmland. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, exemptions that are typically given. And then, of course, the very rich, if you uh, will, will probably, if they don't move out of the country, they'll figure out ways of trying to get around it. So, so um, uh, the amount of money you're going to collect is just going to be uh, very small relative to some of these big dream social policy programs that are going to be very expensive. And in fact, uh, I think that's really part of the problem right now. I think Canadians don't realize uh, that they uh, that they're going to end up paying something for all these different programs. They think that either the rich are going to pay for it, or we can just print money and just roll over debt, uh, government uh, debt forever, uh, and and avoid the problem. In other words, there's no price to pay. And I think is uh, I think it's about time we get more realistic that every one of these social programs that are going to get introduced. Probably we're going to need a payroll tax or a GST hike uh, or something that's really substantial, which raises a lot of money uh, and, it, and it cuts across the whole population paying more taxes. Yeah, an Alberta author we're both familiar with named Mark Milkey wrote a book a few years ago called Tax Me, I'm Canadian. And went on and on and on about how overtaxed we already are. Most of us are very sympathetic to at least the title of Mr. Milky's book and feeling quite beset upon already from a taxation point of view, Jack. Uh, there's not a lot of give left in a typical Canadian's take-home packet, and yet the government is going to find way to get more out of it. So uh, what's the most likely tax increase we'll see first? Oh, I, I, you know, that I'm not sure. Um, I think uh, there are two things that um, the C.D. Howe um, Institute had. Uh, they had a group of um, uh, people, including myself, uh, who uh, said that if you were going to increase taxes, probably the best one to increase is GST. And there is a strong tax policy argument, and I know this is controversial with, um, you know, many people, but there is a strong argument to raise the capital gains tax rate. Um, again, going back to 1972, when we brought in capital gains taxes, the reason we did it is that a lot of companies were passing out income in the form of untaxed capital gains rather than dividends and, and other sources of income like uh, wages and, and uh, et cetera. And so we ended up with a much better um, uh, tax system, balanced tax system, by bringing in capital gains tax with the idea of having capital gains tax, especially at the top end, where most of 
the capital gains are being earned, sure. uh, to be roughly equal to the top rate on dividends. And that's been generally a policy since 72, but right now we're kind of out of whack. The average capital gains tax in Canada is, is roughly about 26%. The average dividend tax rate at the top end is around 38%. Um, if we went from uh, one half to three quarters capital gains taxes, that would be uh, that would bring them uh, together. And you may ask, well, why did they get so far apart recently? Well, it's because we've reduced corporate income taxes, which mm-hmm. I would argue was the right thing to do. The cor- we reduced the corporate income tax rate, which had, back in 2000 was uh, 40, federal provincial rate was around 43%, and today it's 26%. And we should have been increasing the, the capital gains tax rate uh, to bring better balance to the system. And that would probably make the GST uh, at least hike more uh, saleable. Uh, uh, but frankly, I think all I would have rather had the capital gains tax rate increase uh, that would allow us to drop the top personal rate, which I think is too high right now. So uh, that's not my favorite policy, but um, but it's certainly, uh, I think there is an argument for raising capital gains taxes, but I would use the money to to drop the personal tax rates at the top end or at least increase the exemption level at the top end from 200 and mm-hmm. 220,000 to a much to a much higher level because let's face it $220,000 for a single earner you're not rich in Toronto <laughs> in uh, you know in one of our urban centers with a high cost of living yep your your my favorite line from your piece in the Vancouver province where i read it was public spending isn't a magic wand the author of this piece and if you haven't had a chance to take a look at it google it it's will pay for all these down payments jack mince's reaction to the federal fiscal update just a few days ago jack great to speak to you thanks so much for joining us on the program i'd love to do this again uh, sometime after the holidays have a great season we'll talk sometime next year Okay, thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure, entirely. There's Jack Mintz joining us from Toronto this morning. Our guest is going to be uh, Tony Juventu, the province condo smarts columnist. Tony is also the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. And uh, last time he was on the program, we talked a lot about insurance because that was becoming uh, a major issue for many condo owners. And uh, he's got a column in today's paper about fraud. But if you have calls uh, about condo living or perhaps you're a member of a strata council perhaps you have issues with your strata council uh tony Juventu is here to take your calls and to talk uh, on all issues condo again the number is 604-280-9898 tony Juventu, good morning thanks for uh, joining us good to have you back and good morning sterling so let's talk a little bit about condo insurance, because last time you were here, and it's been probably a couple of months anyway, Tony, let's get an update on the status of condo insurance and its availability to condo owners going forward. Certainly the price isn't coming down, or is it? No, the price is not coming down. A lot of that has to do with the um, limited competition that there is in the industry right now. The increased risk the higher values of properties, the higher number of claims. It's just about everything that could possibly have gone wrong for this industry has gone wrong. So, you know, and that's resulted in these extremely high costs for consumers and um, deductibles, which have gone from $25,000, $10,000 up to $100,000, $250,000. So, you know, it's still a pretty hard market for everybody. So, and is, is that uh, that's insurance on individual condos from an owner's point of view, Tony, but what about for the strata councils and the insurance policies that cover their responsibilities? 
Well, that that really is about the strata corporations themselves. Homeowner policies for um, units. So when you buy a condo, your strata corporation insures your whole building. But as the homeowner, you insure your personal sure. property, your personal liability, right? Right. Um, and if and if you've caused a claim, you could certainly be facing one of these massive deductibles. But most claims can tend to be a common expense, so everybody shares in that two hundred and fifty thousand dollar deductible. But we've seen some. We've seen a number of changes in legislation on November 1st that are helping the industry and we've seen some new products come into the industry which are helping people as well so that's that's also been a bit of a, a bonus in the last week let's talk a little bit about the changes to the condo industry as you call it uh, just in the past few months because of course with COVID-19 we've had uh, the virtual disappearance of Airbnb uh, and and that whole accommodation thing that was being integrated into condos, uh, however successfully and however legally in some cases. But nonetheless, we've seen that combined with a reduction in rental requests. So what's happening to the, uh, the condo market, particularly for those individuals, Tony, not people who bought a home and, and live in it, but people who bought a condo specifically as an investment. Well, if, if you were buying as an investor for a land, as a landlord for a long-term tenant, I, I think the market is still very good for investors with respect to long-term tenants. Okay. And it's a much better market for tenants in the sense that the Airbnb has surrendered a significant number of units across the province back into the rental market. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, there was a point there was a point a few years ago where just Metro Vancouver, uh, we had lost almost 25,000 rental units into Airbnbs. And that was, you know, causing a significant part of the rental shortage. So it's, it's a much more balanced rental market. It's still, still expensive. But it's still an availability issue. There are still limits and restrictions, certainly. But it's better than it was three years ago for, for tenants and people who are looking for rentals. But it's still a good market for investors. Um, you know, it's interesting that Airbnb has also um, been um, uh, an issue that a number of strata corporations have looked at because of a number of the problems that they've had um, in their buildings from Airbnb, and they've just outright banned them. And so no short-term accommodations at all. Right. Um, you want to rent your unit, that's fine. But a co- short-term accommodations cause all kinds of issues. And during COVID, of course, short-term accommodations have caused um, some some significant problems with respect to transient people through the building. Mm-hmm. No, no tracing, no monitoring. Nobody knows if they should be in quarantine, where they've come from. Right. So that's, you know, that's created some serious um, concerns for the residents as well. Is there a glut of condos, of new condos? I, I know there is in Toronto right now. They've sort of overbuilt, anticipating tremendous demand, which apparently is not there to the extent that they were anticipating. Is that the case in Vancouver as well? You know, it, it, you can't look in any direction around Metro Vancouver these days, Tony, without seeing a, a forest of cranes and somebody's condo being built. Yes, but there, it, it, you know, when you look at the actual number of units that are actually, that are being constructed, um, I, they all have to go under warranty. So the um, through BC Housing and Consumer Protection, you can look at the numbers every year that are um, actually up for construction. The BC the BC market and the BC development industry, I think, does a much better job of managing the balance between supply and demand. There really isn't a glut. Um, I, I think one of the one of the bigger issues that people are having with condos right now is suddenly over the last year the rapid increase in cost because of the insurance issues. Right, and so that you know that's that's making people have a, a second thought. That that's going to moderate itself out. That's going to balance. 
um, I think we'll see some alternatives in the future that will help that process out. And, and the BC market tends to be much more balanced with respect to supply and demand. And most units that are being constructed are pre-sold anyhow. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like when that building is suddenly available, um, there are going to be 120 units that come on the market for sale. Those units are already pre-sold. So it's, you know, they're being constructed as they're sold. So it's um, it's a, it's quite a bit more balanced within our market. It seems to be more controlled in that regard. So, Tony, back to the insurance for just a brief moment, if I might. If there is no apparent industry-produced or industry-generated solution to the satisfaction of condo, both owners and strata councils, might the government have to step in? And I'm not talking about ICBC-type stuff for condos, but some kind of intervention from Victoria. Do you, do you see that at all? Well, as long as it's a free market system where the um, uh, insurance providers are basically, you know, private insurance providers worldwide, uh, there's very little that the government can do because if the private insurer just looks at it and says, well, look, this is not affordable, not feasible, doesn't generate profit, we're just out of the market, Mm -hmm. it could could imbalance the whole system and create a much much greater problem. But but there are alternatives. You know, BC has the ability um, and already has through our municipal um, insurance very successfully created a captive, which is essentially um, uh, a cooperative corporation where everyone is a share owner partner. um, And we get into an insurance situation where that occurs, but that's not necessarily any more affordable and it doesn't necessarily have any more risks because we're, we're basically, when you look at the condo market in BC with bear lands and resort properties and everything else, we're basically insuring, you know, somewhere between 100 and 150 billion dollars of assets. It's it's a substantial portfolio. So it's, you know, the difficulty is do we get enough people to participate for capacity sure. and to be able to, to deliver it? And, and that's part of the challenge that everyone's going to have to face over the next year. Tony Juventu is with us. He is the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. He is also the Vancouver Province Condo Smarts columnist. And it's today's column about uh, reduce potential fraud that I wanted to talk to you about for a moment, Tony. But first, we're going to take a call from Linda, who's been very patiently waiting to have a a word with you. Linda, good morning. Thanks for waiting. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, No problem. Um, I had a question. This year, in our strata, it's a commercial strata, we had a really hard time securing a contract with our snow removal. Um, The company we used last year said, I'm sorry, we can't do it. Our insurance company won't let let us provide services to you because we're high risk. We're high, we have a lot of seniors that attend our property. And um, then when I started phoning around getting quotes, there was a lot of insurance companies that said their insurance, or sorry, snow removal companies that said their insurance rates went from like $2,000 to $25,000 and they, they weren't willing to purchase the insurance to provide the service. What do you know about that? Yeah, it's a it's a serious problem across the province. It isn't just condos that are being hit. The entire commercial sector of our industry is being hit, being hit as well. So people who provide public services such as snow removal or window cleaning, um, uh, a lot of these services, um, we're finding that the increase of insurance is almost making it prohibitive, even for smaller businesses. It's it it isn't just strata corporations and condos that are being that are really being subject to this in BC. It, it's right across the board. 
Linda, is the uh, as as you pursue this snow removal thing, and you're wise to get it to get on it now because it's coming. And when it arrives, apparently we're supposed to get quite the dose this year. So stay on the project. But uh, as you dial around inquiring after snow removal companies, are you also finding other service providers being more reluctant to uh, carry on with you? This is the one. Like our the budget line went from twelve thousand dollars in the couple of the quotes were $40,000 wow. okay. this year. And, um, and I'm, I'm curious, what's the danger of finally saying to a, because it's not just snow removal, it's salting too, which sure. has been already required. Um, what's the danger of saying, okay, well, I guess we'll go with a company that doesn't have any insurance. Oh, okay. Tony, you want to take that one too? Well, uh, the danger is, is, really for the strata corporation because the strata corporation's insurance would be called upon if somebody were to be injured on your property that's mm-hmm. what would occur no matter what right. uh, it might be this might be really a valid discussion you would have with your insurance broker to see if you can person, per, purchase an additional rider for this purpose which might really ease up the insurance requirements for the service provider uh, your insurance broker should be able to hunt around for other types of products that might be able to help fill in the gaps for this as well all right linda hopefully uh, that uh, advice is is helpful tony i think that linda's comments are, are probably a little eye-popping to many who just assume the insurance matters uh, were only pertinent to condo owners and strata councils but in fact it 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 uh, completely leaks over into the entire provider sector for those condos, doesn't it? It really does. And even things like professional liability insurance for consultants and support personnel, like we've, we've seen substantial increases right across the board. Um, some industries have been a little less um, impacted because of the lower risks. But generally, where there's an interaction, where there's a likelihood to be a higher risk, we see a substantial increase in insurance. Hmm, interesting. Let's talk about this fraud column you've got up in today's paper. Uh, you had a, a note from a, a treasurer from a, stat, a strata council out in the Fraser Valley who was trying to get caught up, who was new appointee, and was going through the books trying to reconcile everything and found a, a cost that it was a continuing cost that added up to more than 100000 bucks and took over five years to get to. But as it turns Turns out there wasn't actually a company that was being paid all this money. Yeah, you know, when we see this every now and then, it, it was just basically the previous treasurer who had set up a, a phony company that was basically paying the money into that company on a monthly quarterly basis as if it was a service contract. Right. Uh, and then, you know, she and her husband sold and left. Um, and it was after the fact that the Strata Corporation started asking questions and this, this very, you know, astute um, council member who was the treasurer looked at the books and looked at this company and started asking questions. And turns out the company didn't exist. Right. Um, it was just a dummy company that was set up. And we see them every now and then. And it happens on all levels. Happens with nonprofit organizations. Happens with um, associations and strata corporations. It, it, you know, as your as your duty as a, board, a director of a board or a, um, a strata council member, take it seriously. Look at and vet all of the businesses that you're um, paying money to. Make sure you have service agreements for all of them. Um, and make sure you have contracts for all of them. And if you don't, start asking some serious questions because this it, this is a fairly easy thing to do yeah. um, if you, people aren't paying attention in your property. Tony, how frequently, if at all, are audits required of strata councils? 
They're not a requirement under the legislation. And realistically, when you look at it, we're talking about stratas that are everything from a duplex up to 1,100 units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's been, a you know, everyone's debated over the years, should audits be required or not? One of the real challenges with audits right now, which, you know, right across the whole industry, here's another challenge, um, is that we have a real shortage of service providers. So trying to get an audit done um, uh, and even get quotes on audits could take six months to a year. Well, you know, we have strata corporations who are who have had transitions from one management company to another recently who have looked at the financials with some question marks around them. And they're trying to find an um, an auditor to do an audit for them right. for, you know, 2018, 2019. Um, they've been at it for six months and they still can't find somebody to do the audit for them. So, you know, it's it, we have a we have a shortage of labor in certain industries. We have high demands. We have increased insurance costs. But, you know, it, everything is just kind of mounting up to make business just quite a bit more challenging for everybody. It sure is. Tony, I'm just going to recommend your website to our listeners, choa, C-H-O-A dot B-C dot C-A for the Condominium Homeowners Association. It's a fabulous website. It's a great resource. And the boss is Tony Juventu. Thanks for joining us again, Tony. Great to, to talk to you again. Thanks a lot, Sterling, and stay healthy and stay safe. Indeed, you too, my friend. It's time to continue with our Community Arts Center series, and this time we're out in the Fraser Valley checking in with Laura Lee Billing, who is the theater manager for the Abbotsford School District and the Abbotsford Arts Center. Laura Lee, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure entirely. Now, your setup is a little different from a lot of other community arts centers because the school district is involved. Tell our listeners how that works, Laura Lee, please. Well, uh, Abbotsford's super lucky because the Abbotsford School District operates this theater for community, school use, um, for with no... Without, you know, without anybody else funding it, the city doesn't contribute, uh, there's no board, there's no fundraising, so the Abbotsford School District truly believes in the arts and the power of the arts. So let's talk a little bit about what you have uh, in terms of theater, capacity, galleries, those sorts of things. When people well, show up, what, what do they see? Well, what we have is we have a 701-seat theater and a secondary space that is 3,000 square feet that we've turned into a black box theater and a multiplex space. So our equipment, of course, is uh, very high-end. We're very production-focused uh, mm-hmm. with our theater. It's fully functional, like kind of like the Orpheum, but out in the valley, right? Okay. So it's a, it's a pretty exciting place. Um, obviously, uh, the turns of this year have been brutal, right? Sure. Um, it, it's really devastating to the students not to be able to, to actually perform, and it's devastating that we can't bring in touring productions and it's obviously devastating to the local theater companies like Gallery 7, Fraser Valley Stage. Mm-hmm. They're not able to perform with any normalcy. Has there been any performances at all? Some of the theater companies have sort of dialed back there. And, of course, I'm assuming that 701-seat seat theater has been reduced to a capacity of 50, as is the case in most community theaters across the province, Laura Lee. But a lot of the other companies have decided to uh, to try to do something during this, have dialed it back to one-man shows or small productions, uh, again, with 50 people in the room. Have you been able to pull any of that off? Yeah, actually, we were able to uh, do an actual dance competition uh, in the summer, and then we've had Gallery 7 come and do live uh, performances. And what we've done with the school productions is we started to film them. So the the students will have the opportunity to at least perform the show. 
I mean, we all know that the tragedy of live performance is that every performer needs an audience, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And I think that's what's been the hardest transition, is that although we're still trying to, you know, continue forward and provide the, you know, provide the art for the students to experience, it's never going to be the same without the interaction, without the audience. But we're trying, of course, because we can't stop. Sure. And what about the other, you mentioned uh, by name, a couple of the other community theater groups. Uh, they, yeah. they use, you share production facilities or performance facilities with them. Have they been able to mount any productions over the past while? Yeah, Gallery 7 is the only one that's done some live readings, right? Because, I mean, especially now, we can't have an audience at all. All right, right? yes, that's I mean, true. We're, we're cut off. Mm-hmm. It's terrible, right? So, I mean, you know, they did something in the fall. Um, they're going to probably try and do... We're, gonna, we're hoping to have an audience by spring. I mean, we just keep moving forward and doing what we can do with sure. what we have. So nothing, you know, nothing stopped. It's just not the same. Yeah, well, the guidelines may, and you have to underscore may a couple of times, change tomorrow because the current uh, regulations or the current orders expire December 7th, which is tomorrow. So Dr. Henry and Mr. Dix are going to speak tomorrow afternoon. They'll be here on CKNW and elsewhere, and that might uh, change the dynamic in terms of people being allowed inside theater venues again. I assume you, uh, you have your fingers crossed. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have to follow the restart plan and the provincial provincial health orders, uh, you know, being a, a school district. Right. And we have to be careful about the cohorts we do let into the theater, right? Because it's all about making sure that we're, we're protecting everybody. Um, you know, we've taken a significant hit, right? Obviously, the community has without touring productions, without the normal productions, Um You know, it's so essential to the district, actually, to have our theater. Um, So the kids, you know, I mean, like, I'm still trying to work with students who are interested in production and stuff, but it's just so limited because I can't throw them in with professional companies. Sure. Right. But, uh, I mean, we're not going to stop. That's the bottom line. <laughs> and that's, it doesn't matter what they throw at us. We're going to continue to try to thrive and make the art. And that's the that's the common denominator of determination. I'm discovering, Laura Lee, as we continue to speak to more people like you, enthusiastic, determined people inside the arts community who are just by hook or crook. Something's going to get on that stage. We're just not going to lie down and let this thing wash over us. So. I, want, I, I wanted to ask you about sponsors as well, because you have a different relationship than other centers with the school board being involved. Do you have outside uh, private sponsors as well? No, we don't. Oh, lucky you. We do not. I mean, literally, I mean, obviously, like, organizations will, will have their sponsors, right? Like, you know, Fraser Valley Stage will have sponsors sure. to help get the production up. But literally, it is the Abbotsford School, and I'm so proud of this, the Abbotsford School District runs this center for the community and the school. And they don't ask for any money. You know, I think they deserve money, but no, we're just doing it on our own. That's fantastic. And of course, no, the, the one good thing about all of this, besides your energy and determination, is just a, a, a nonstop uh, quantity of performers who, are, who just are so anxious to get out there as you said every performer loves an audience and they're all audience starved so Laura Lee there's no shortage of energy in that department is there no I mean it's 
it's just, you know, I mean, we try not to pretend this isn't devastating and that we're going to somehow make it work because that's what we do. We persevere, right? Um, but it, it's got to be so hard. It's hard for me. Like, I was discussing how my heart's kind of broken because I haven't had an audience in my theater since March. Yeah, yeah, that's and it really tough. it does break my heart because uh, that's what the lifeblood is, right? No kidding. Laura Lee, thanks for doing this with us this morning. I'm just going to let our listeners know that if they want to learn more, they can go to abbotsfordarts.abbyschools.ca and the Abbotsford Arts Center just pops right up. Laura Lee Billing, thanks for this. Keep up the energy. Keep up that uh, determination. All right. Thank you. Our pleasure. Laura Lee Billing from the Abbotsford School District's Abbotsford Theater. That is it for our show for this weekend. Thanks to Julie Wong and Andrew Ferreira. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you right here next weekend.